Here is a man or a woman walking out of the gates of a prison. They've been held for a certain number of months or maybe years and now they walk out into the fresh air and they are free. Or are they? Well, they might not be. At least not in the sense that we speak of freedom. If they've been released under parole or under licence, they do manage to get out of the prison. But actually, they are still under sentence and there will be various terms and conditions with which they must comply. And if they don't, they can be arrested by the police for breach of those conditions and they can be thrown straight back into prison. Not as free as you might at first suppose. Real freedom comes when the whole of the sentence has been served and there is not a single day left to go. And that prison no longer has any legal hold over you. You are at last a free man or woman. Jesus said that if he, the Son, shall set you free, you shall be free indeed, not a semblance of freedom, real freedom. And on that basis, Paul urges the Galatian believers to stand fast in the liberty by which Christ has made us free. Don't be entangled again, he says, in a yoke of bondage. False teachers have persuaded these Galatian churches that as Christians they are a little bit like a prisoner who is out on parole, a sort of freedom that they have in Christ but with all kinds of terms and conditions to be met in keeping the law if their freedom is to be sustained. And so their freedom is, yes, dependent upon Christ, but also dependent upon their law-keeping. Christ gets you out of the door, so to speak, but then there's all these additional things that you're required to do. No, Paul is saying, it's not like that. Why are you choosing to place yourself under that kind of freedom, which isn't true freedom at all, when in Christ you really have been set free. And that's the thought that he wants to develop further in these opening 12 verses of Galatians chapter 5. So I invite you to have that open in front of you. And we'll look at those verses together and we'll break it down into three sections. First of all, in the opening phrase of verse 1, Paul talks about true liberty. This liberty or freedom is a very specific liberty. And I just want to say that some people confuse it today with what is called social justice. The gospel is about spiritual freedom and it has nothing at all to do with a person's social or economic position. 
many people in this world live under earthly poverty, oppression, tyranny, injustice. And whilst we are to make sure that we treat people justly and with kindness and mercy and equity and impartiality, you must make sure that you don't confuse the spiritual freedom which is found in Christ with setting people free from worldly afflictions. They are two completely different things. When you come to Christ in repentance and faith, whoever you are and whatever your background and circumstances, you will receive exactly the same blessings and privileges and the things which all of us need as sinful men and women. Which is why back in uh, verse 28 of Galatians chapter 3, Paul says there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. Those earthly distinctions between us just disappear and they are as nothing. You are all one in Christ Jesus. In the eyes of the world, you're still Jewish or Greek. You still are a slave or a free man. You still are male or female, but one in Christ Jesus. There's a, he's talking about a spiritual realm, spiritual reality, removed from our earthly situation and circumstances. Jesus came to deal with your spiritual poverty, not your financial poverty. Having become a Christian, that may or may not make a difference to your earthly situation and circumstances. And actually, from the viewpoint of an unbeliever, it could make your situation even worse. Some, when they come to Christ, are thrown out of their families, ostracised from their community, and with a death threat upon their heads. What kind of freedom is that, you may ask? But in Christ, they have been set free. And it's that spiritual freedom that they have in Christ that Paul is concerned about. In Ephesians chapter 6, Paul writes to Christians who are slaves. And as you read what he has to say, it seems that he expects them, in terms of their earthly circumstances, he expects them to continue to be slaves. But slaves set free spiritually in Christ. Now you may decide that you want to take up the cause of the oppressed and the afflicted in this world. Well, good, go for it. But do remember that when you read verses like Galatians 5.1 and in its context, it's so obviously speaking of the spiritual freedom that all men and women need, which is their greatest need. Even the ones who in this world are those who are doing the exploiting and the oppressing of others in the world. All men and women need this spiritual freedom in Christ.
What then is this liberty by which Christ has made us free? Well, it's a liberty which points you firstly to the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ and secondly to the empty tomb and declares that there in him you have been set free. You've been set free from the demands of the law for your justification, which leaves you condemned under its curse. These are the things we've been thinking about as we've gone through this series in Galatians. You've been set free from the dominion and power of sin, which holds you captive and from which you and I are unable to escape. You're free from condemnation on that day of judgment at the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ because your sin penalty has already been paid in full by Christ on the cross. Because of that, the Christian is free from the wrath of God and from eternal punishment and torment in hell. Free now. To enter into God's eternal presence because your heavenly father now sees you as clothed with the righteousness of Christ by means of his sinless life. And so you've also been set free from the fear of death because you know that when this earthly life comes to a close, you will forever be with your God and saviour. You're set free because in Christ you are pardoned and forgiven. You're set free from guilt and a guilty conscience. Free from having to conform to the sinful and wicked patterns of this world. Set free now to live as God would have you live. Because now it's no longer you who live, but Christ lives in you. And the life which you now live in the flesh, you live by faith in the Son of God who loved you and gave himself for you. You have been set free from the blindness and deadness of your former sinful state so that you may now know and experience all of these glorious blessings and privileges in Christ. If you take up into your hand a copy of the commentary to the book of Galatians in the Wellin commentary series, you'll see that the title of that book is Free in Christ. If you have a copy of Warren Wearsby's commentary on Galatians, what title did he give it? Now, if you're not familiar with them, all of Wearsby's books have a two-word title. For Joshua, it's Be Strong. Ecclesiastes, Be Satisfied. James, Be Mature. Hebrews, Be Confident. Philippians, Be Joyful. Galatians, I wonder, have I teed it up for you sufficiently? Be free. John 8, 22. Jesus says, you shall know the truth and the truth 
shall make you free. I seem to have quoted this quite a bit, um, this hymn, during the course of the last few months. But these easy to remember words wonderfully sum up our position. That hymn of Wesley, Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. God's eye diffused a life-giving ray. And I woke, and the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. If we were all together in the academy, I'd get you to shout it out with me. My heart was free. And what can I now do that I could never have done previously? I rose, went forth. And followed thee. Because I've been set free. When you come to Christ you will be set free indeed. In all the fullness of the liberty that he supplies. Would you not consider coming to him this morning for this freedom? If you've never done that before. As you continue to listen. And for those of us who are Christians, uh, the thing that we need to do is to remain in him in order that we continue in this freedom. Stand fast, says Paul, in the liberty by which Christ has made you free. Now, if you've been following this series, you'll understand why it is that Paul is placing so much emphasis on this particular truth. Why would these Galatian believers have started to behave as if they don't want this freedom? Or as if they think they found something better than this? There is nothing better than this. No, says Paul, as he continues from the second half of verse 1. If you continue down this other path that you've chosen for yourselves, you will find... That instead of being in a place of total liberty and freedom, you'll actually find that you've put yourself in a place of total subjugation. Number two. I was trying to find one word. Subjugation is it. Now, if you're scratching your head wondering what on earth does that word mean? Well, it means to have put yourself in a position where you are entangled with a yoke of bondage. To be under a great burden which cannot be removed and from which you cannot be relieved. You are under this weight of the law. Now, when you become entangled in something... It means that you become so wrapped up in it that you have no means of escape. And that's what this yoke of bondage is. This belief that in keeping the law of God, you may add or gain credit with God so as to make yourself sufficiently good and righteous and acceptable to him. It's an entanglement because there's no escaping from it. Because there's never any end to it. 
There's always one more rung to climb, one more level to reach, one more law to keep, one more day, one more week, when you have to do it all over again. Now, Paul presents us with several arguments in verses 2 to 4 trying to bring home this message that these Galatian believers have turned from a place of total liberty and they've put themselves under total subjugation. Why would they do that? Well, here's how he argues, first of all, in verse 2. If you choose to become circumcised, referring to circumcision literally, but also it serves us as an example to represent any form of law-keeping or self-righteousness by good works. If you do anything which demonstrates that you are not trusting only in Christ alone for your salvation, then you are not trusting in Christ alone for your salvation and therefore you're not saved because trusting only in Christ alone by faith is the only way that anyone can be saved this is what verse 2 means this is why Paul is providing such a long and urgent exhortation to the Galatian believers on these topics if there is the tiniest thought in your mind that based upon the kind of person that you are and the things that you have done, that having lived this way, that will somehow be added to the work of Christ in order to clinch for you your salvation, your justification, then you might just find yourself amongst those many who will be standing before Christ, protesting their inclusion on the basis of what they have done, and yet hearing from Christ's own lips, depart, because I've never known you. If you say that you are trusting in law-keeping, in good works, to assist you in your being justified, then you are putting yourself under subjugation, under a yoke of bondage to keep every point of the law. Verse 3. If you're trusting in law-keeping, then you must keep all of it. If you're trusting in your own goodness, then your every thought and word and deed must be 100% pure all the time. You are, as we might say, putting yourself on a hiding to nothing if you choose to go down that path. You're embarking on a fool's er errand. It cannot be done. And what about verse 4? Now is Paul suggesting here that these in Galatia, who he seems to be talking to as genuine believers, that they have or may have done something 
which has caused them to lose their salvation. Well, no, the Bible makes it clear that if you truly are saved, you cannot lose that salvation because Christ has promised that no one and no thing will ever snatch you from his hand once you're in his hand. And so this verse leaves us with two options. First of all, that you can, as a Christian, place yourself in a position of error, that you've embraced wrong teaching and wrong doctrine, that you're no longer proclaiming Christ in the same way that he was proclaimed when you first heard and trusted him. You've lost sight of the centrality and the vital nature and the role of grace. And so you're in need of repentance that you might return to where you began. Or, secondly, face the fact that you never were there in the first place. Let me remind you, says Paul in verses 5 and 6, it's all of faith in Christ. Wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. That's what we do. Now we had this theme of hope last Wednesday in Colossians chapter 1. The hope which is laid up for you in heaven. It's the same, same topic. All believers eagerly await that great last day when we enter into the final fullness and the completion of our salvation. At last, made to be perfectly righteous as Christ receives us into our eternal and heavenly reward. This hope is how the Bible refers to something which is certain, but which we don't yet have. On what basis do we have such a hope of righteousness, asks Paul. Faith in Christ. Are you circumcised? That makes no difference. Are you uncircumcised? That makes no difference. Are you of faith? Just faith. In Christ. And only Christ. Not the labours of my hands can fulfil the law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save, and thou alone. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, Helpless, look to thee for grace. Foul, I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Saviour, or I die. Either you're enjoying this complete and total liberty in Christ, in the salvation which is found only in him, by faith, won for you by Christ, through his sinless life, his atoning death, his victorious resurrection. Either you have that freedom, 
which is all of him, or you have no freedom at all. And Paul is devastated because these Galatian believers have been totally misguided. And this is our third and final thought as we move on from verse, 12, from verse 7 to verse 12. From such a good starting place, how have they been turned away from obeying the truth? Now, you have to believe the truth, but you must also entrust it, rest upon it, obey it. Obeying the truth means an active trusting in Christ alone. And right now, that's not what they're doing. I wonder how it is with you right now this morning. Are you, do you have this obeying, trusting, believing faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? Now, what's happened in the Galatian church? Well, at verse 8, Paul tells us they've been persuaded by someone else about something else. Persuasion. Persuasion suggests something which happened gradually. They were drip-fed, slowly cajoled and manoeuvred until they finally accepted this new position. And it warns us that it's possible to be a Christian and become persuaded of something which is not true and which is not part of gospel truth. But I've looked into all of this and it seems credible and I'm persuaded by it. That was the position of the Galatians. That's what some today might say. Well, you may well be persuaded, but strength of persuasion doesn't mean it's true. Paul says to the Galatians, that what they've become persuaded about has not come from the one who first called them by his gospel. It has a different source and origin. I can see that you're persuaded by it, says Paul. And that is precisely the problem. One thing which can easily lead to the eventual destruction of churches is when church members start to become persuaded about something. And sometimes different church members become persuaded about different things. And those things that they become persuaded about erode and corrupt the centrality and the clarity of a biblically faithful gospel message. And that gospel message becomes lost amongst all of these other things over which they've become persuaded. I'm persuaded about this. I've taken this view. I think this is the way to go. And the little leaven, that which starts small, quiet, apparently insignificant, spreads through the whole lump, verse 9. And the whole lump eventually becomes corrupted. Verse 10 shows us that Paul believes that for the most part, the members of these churches are all genuine believers who heard and believed in the true gospel message and who at the beginning were trusting only in Christ for their salvation. And he's confident that in the Lord, by God's grace, with the Spirit's help, 
this teaching he's giving them will cause them to see this wrong turn that they've taken and that they'll turn around 180 degrees and get back to the right path. He has confidence that this will happen. As for those who are responsible for this, well, they will answer to God and in his perfect wisdom and justice, he will judge them accordingly. Some, as Paul says in verse 11, some are trying to suggest that there's no difference at all between what these false teachers have been preaching and what Paul preaches. But Paul asks why, if that is so, why is he persecuted in a way that these other preachers are not? If Paul preached a message of salvation by works, as these others do, he would experience far less opposition and persecution, he argues. Now, why might that be the case? Well, it's because proud, sinful hearts love to be told that there is something that they can do. That they have whatever that is needed within themselves to be able to do it. It's within their power to do it. You see, the true message of the gospel confronts people with the message of the cross, which tells them that there is nothing that they can do and that they need that which only Christ could do for them at Calvary. And the world in its sin despises that message that I am so sinful that I'm unable to help myself, unable to make myself right with God, unable to be good enough. The world hates that message. If I had gone down their route, says Paul, the offence of the cross would have been removed and that would have reduced or removed the persecution that I, that I experienced but I still get persecuted because I still preach the cross. At the wedding of Prince Harry and Meghan, an American preacher preached, and the following morning it seemed like the whole world was singing his praises. That should have immediately alerted Christians that something was not right. But even many Christians were talking about how wonderful it was. The problem was that they had been taken in. They'd been taken in by his style of oratory. They'd been taken in by his passionate delivery and concluded that on that basis, it must have been a good sermon. What they had failed to do was listen to what he actually said. Now he did make a few references to the gospel right at the beginning, but by the end his message was basically this. The answer for us all is simply to love one another. Great, said all and sundry. I can do that. Pardon? I can do that. I can 
do. Problem. The cross offends because the cross says, no, you can't. Only he can. And points away from yourself and to Christ. The cross says, before God, you are a filthy wretch who needs that salvation which only Christ can give you. The cross says, you are up to your neck in sin and condemned. And you need the grace and the mercy and the forgiveness of God. The message of the gospel is away with your sexual immorality and perversions and everything else. You need to turn in repentance from your sins and live a life of righteousness and holiness and godliness and obedience to the word of God. I can guarantee that Piers Morgan would not have been singing his praises as he was the following morning on Good Morning Britain if those were the truths that in any way had been conveyed in that message that day. Just love one another. That'll put you right. Great, thanks, I can do that. And the world walks away happy and still in their sins. Paul's conclusion regarding those who had brought this corrupting message to Galatia. Our conclusion regarding any who would preach in a similar vein. With circumcision in mind, he says he wishes that they would cut themselves off. He just wants rid of them. There can be no beating around the bush or trying to tread softly with such people. There's simply too much at stake to be nice. Friends, the gospel is a message that you need to be set free. You need to be set free from sin, your sin, and all of its consequences. Now, and on the day of judgment, and for all eternity. The message of the gospel is that in Christ, and only in him, by faith, by God's grace, you may be set free. And if Christ has set you free, you shall be free indeed.